Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Well, you're here in a church on a Sunday morning. That makes me think that you have at least some passing interest in spirituality, in the things of God. And since you're here in a church, you may think there's some benefit here, that maybe there'll be someone you know, maybe I can grow, maybe I can know more about God, maybe I can grow spiritually. Well, I have good news for you. We're in a passage of Scripture that's going to talk about exactly that. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, a message that Jesus gives about life in God's kingdom. And the part of the sermon we're getting into now is really focused on that. What should a citizen of God's kingdom do? How should they live? What should be their attitude toward life? And today he's really going to focus on how we grow. His whole sermon is about we should have a life of exceeding righteousness, our righteousness, our goodness. What we do should exceed that of others. If God's made a difference in us, others should see that difference. And so today we're going to talk about the growth that they should see. Because while we want to affirm very clearly that if we have saving faith in Jesus Christ, if we are truly a Christian, there's a decision that we've made. We've made a decision to turn away from sin and embrace faith in Christ. But true faith is also more than a decision. It's the start of a lifestyle, of a journey. Our faith is not stagnant, it grows. And I know that may be a a challenging thing to think about in a year like this, because sometimes in 2020, pandemic, all this, we want to put the brakes on things, say, I just need to sit back, and once this is all over, then I can start growing in my faith again. But true Christian faith isn't just something that stays the same. We're supposed to be growing in it, knowing more and more of God. And the good news is Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us how we can grow spiritually. What Jesus is really talking about in our text today are things known as spiritual disciplines. And that's just a phrase, I mean, it's things we do, things we practice that help us to know God better, a discipline, a practice, an action. Probably the best one of these there is, is Bible intake, getting God's word into our lives and our hearts, whether it's by reading the Bible for ourselves or hearing it preached on a Sunday morning like you're doing either here or online. It might be memorizing God's Word so that we're able to call it to mind when we need it, or studying, really knowing God's Word. But at the time Jesus is speaking, not everyone would have owned a copy of God's Word, so he's going to talk about some spiritual disciplines, some practices they can do, no matter whether they have a copy of God's Word or not. And he's going to encourage them to do those disciplines in a way that honors God so that they can grow spiritually. And as we read it, we'll learn how we can too. So let's pray, and then we'll look at our passage. Lord, thank you for our time we have this morning in your word. I pray, God, that you'd help us to see how we can grow and how we can know you more, how we can rely on you. God, show us that you expect us to be doing these things. You expect us to be growing and to know you. But God, also convict us that we don't do these disciplines or practices so that others see us, but our motive should be that you see us, that we know you, that they are personal and meaningful. So God, make these practices a reality in our life, not because we need them to know you, but because since we know you through Jesus Christ, we are able to do these things. I pray that he may get the glory in our time together. May he increase in our prayers and our affections. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. 
the first thing Jesus is going to say, if we're going to grow spiritually, before we even talk about what that looks like, we have to first check our motives. We need to check your motive. If you're using the, the sheet, there's some copies in the back, or you can pull it up online. Your first blank is motive. We want to check our motive. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1 of our passage. This is what Jesus says. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is kind of the main overriding, overarching point of our passage we're looking at today. How should we grow spiritually? Jesus says we should beware, be careful, take heed. We need to watch out that we're not practicing our righteousness or doing good charitable deeds, that we're not doing them before others so that we're noticed by them and admired by them. He says we need to be aware of this. We need to have constant vigilance. We are supposed to be practicing righteousness. When we practice righteousness, do these things that Jesus calls us to do, it helps us grow to know him. He's told us earlier in the sermon we should be doing this. Back in chapter 5, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we may read that and say, well, Pastor John, that's the very opposite of what Jesus just said and what we read. But notice what Jesus is saying here. We do these things so that others see them and they give glory to God. They see, oh, they're doing this and they praise God for it. In our text, Jesus is saying that they shouldn't, you shouldn't do this so people see you and praise you. So we are supposed to do it and we're supposed to do it so others praise God. In the book of 1 John, the author says this, if you know that he, that God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, he's saying, if God is righteous and good, and if we do the things that are righteous and good that God has told us to do, that is evidence, that is proof that we are a child of God, that we belong to him, that we have been born of him. It's not something we do to earn favor with God, to earn acceptance with him. It's the proof that we belong to him. Now, when we do those things, we can do it in a wrong way. And that's what Jesus is talking about. If we do these actions for recognition, for fame, to be noticed, to be seen by others, that is not the way we should do it. Jesus is especially critiquing the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. He'll get more into detail about that in our passage. But in another part of Matthew, he says this. He says, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. The example he gives is they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. A phylactery, that's just that box that the, they had on their head. It had a copy of God's word. And so some of them would make it very big. So you could tell they have God's word on their head and on their mind. And they would make the fringes of, of their robes, their prayer shawls long so that people could see, oh, they're deep in prayer. But Jesus is saying they're doing all of this to be seen by others, not because they actually have a relationship with God. The issue is not really if somebody ever sees us doing things that are right, but what is our motive? Do we want people to see us or do we want to grow? Do we want God to get the glory? And that idea, our motive, our desire, that's key to our spiritual growth. We should do these things, these practices in a way that honors God, not just to look good before others. 
We should grow out of a genuine desire to be more like Jesus, not because of what others think about us. The question really is, is our life about pleasing ourselves because we're noticed and people praise us, or is it about pleasing God and knowing Him? And if we've checked our motive, then we can look at how we can grow. Jesus is going to give us three disciplines, three examples, three ways that we can grow. The first one he talks about, or the second major point in the sermon, is he talks about giving, about giving. So let's look at verses 2 through 4 of our passage. Matthew 6, 2 through 4 says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the first discipline he talks about is giving, giving what God has blessed us to others, those in need or for his kingdom. And the first thing I'll point out is Jesus is assuming that we're giving, that we, that's a way we're growing to be like God. The word he says is when you give to the needy. He says it in verse 2 and in verse 4. When you give to the needy, but when you give to the needy. The point is giving is expected. Giving is expected. That's the next blank if you're following along the outline. Giving is expected. God expects us to give to his people, his work, and to those in need. Giving is expected. The British pastor J.C. Ryle said, a giving savior will have giving disciples. God has given so much to us. He's given us life. He's given us everything we need to be alive. And if he's given us these things, then a way we grow is by giving to others. But Jesus tells us how we're to do it. He says, do not sound a trumpet before you so you're praised, honored, to call attention to yourself. If you do that, then you're being a hypocrite, a play actor, a pretender. You're pretending to love and honor God, but you're really not. You're really just focused on yourself. And when Jesus says this, we have to understand how shocking this would have been to those first hearing this. Faith at this time in in the Jewish culture, it was all about your external actions. You were supposed to be proud that you were a Jew and that you were doing these things for God. And Jesus isn't saying there's anything wrong about being proud of your faith, but he is saying you should do it for God, not for others. When he says about a trumpeter, that's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but he's still making the point, who is your giving for? Is it for others to see or is it for you to grow? Is it a focus on God? As he says, if you that they may be praised by others in verse 2. And he says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The New Living Translation puts it this way, I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. If we do things just to be praised by others, then more often than not, we'll get that praise. But that's all we'll get. It won't be of a spiritual benefit for us. It won't help us to grow, to know God. Recognition is a reward that fades quickly. It's an earthly goal, and so it will earn us an earthly reward, not one that will last for eternity. We can sometimes see this in the life of others. I'm sure you've seen somewhere a building, a bridge, something that's been named after somebody that paid a whole bunch of money to make that project happen, millionaire or something like that. There's colleges named after 
millionaires and the money that they left behind. And it's easy to critique that, but we can do similar things. Even though we're not giving millions of dollars to something, we may say we want gratitude, we want thanks, we want respect because we've given to support this work of the Lord. But if we give so that others praise us, whether it's in the church or we post on social media, it was my joy to be able to give to this ministry or this thing. We, we can promote somebody else saying this person needs help, but if we do it for a desire for praise for ourselves, then that praise is the only reward that we will ever get. We shouldn't just give to something that's popular or earn us praise because the amount of money something gets doesn't determine its value. I'm sure you know there's terrible movies that have made millions of dollars. How much money something gets doesn't, doesn't determine whether it's good or bad. God honors our heart in giving. And so Jesus says instead of doing that, we should try to give in secret. Our giving should be secret. It's expected, but it should be secret or private. We should seek a reward from God, not from man. And that reward is not that, oh, we'll give and God will bless me back with more money. The the reward is knowing more of God himself. The reward is that we are knowing God. We have a relationship with him. It's a motive for us to give generously because God sees and he'll know us better. He'll reward us now spiritually and when he returns at his final judgment in a way that we cannot even imagine we will be with him. We'll be in a relationship with him. Every detail of how we gave, how we served, how we've grown, how we model Jesus will be known and will be rewarded and proclaimed for God's glory. He will say, well done. So we can grow by giving. It's expected, but we should do it in secret, not to be praised, but to grow closer to God. The second example he gives is prayer the discipline of prayer. He talks about this in verses five through eight. Here's what he says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So we can grow by giving, but we also grow by prayer. Prayer is supposed to be a conversation with God. But what's sad about what Jesus is talking about is even when we're praying, even when we're talking to God, our sin, our rebellion against God, it tries to worm its way into that conversation. We're talking to the holy God, but sin sneaks its way in there. I read someone who said the greatest illustration of sin is not really someone like a, a homeless drug addict. We say, oh, that person's lost their home. They lost their family. That's how terrible sin is. That's what it can do to you. That's not That's not really the power of sin. The power of sin is if you look at a Christian, a follower of God, who's trying to pray, but they keep getting distracted in their mind. They keep thinking about themselves, and they're not thinking about their conversation with God. That's how powerful sin is. It comes into our conversation with God. That's how strong our rebellion against him is. That's how much we need God's grace. 
So Jesus is saying, when we are praying, our prayer is to be expected. He says again in verse 5, when you pray. In verse 6, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. We are to pray to God. We are to address him sincerely. We're to seek to know him more. It's expected. Scholar Danny Aiken said, prayer is a child of God talking to his or to her heavenly father and listening to our father by his word, illuminated or made clear by the spirit. In prayer, we're talking to God and then we're listening, looking at his words, saying, God, what are you saying to me? How am I to grow and to know you more? But Jesus points out there's a false way to pray. It's expected, yes, but we shouldn't put on a show with our prayer. He says the hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Jesus says you are talking to God. But for Jews of the day, especially the Pharisees, these type of public prayers were common. In fact, public prayers two or three times a day is what they did. And they often did it in a way like this, to draw attention in the middle of the the synagogue, their gathering, or at a street corner where everyone could see, they would pray. Jesus tells a story about this that's really powerful in the Gospel of Luke. He talks about a Pharisee and also a tax collector praying. So this Pharisee, this religious leader, standing by himself, he prayed this way. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this other tax collector here. God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes 10% of all I get. But the tax collector, he was standing far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, it's this man, this tax collector, who went down to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the great mystery, the great contradiction of faith, that the way up is the way down. That as we go down and humble ourselves, God raises us up to know him. This is the attitude that we should have in prayer. In prayer, it's not important when we're doing it. It's not important where we're doing it. It's not important who knows that we're praying. Again, though, at the day it was because they wanted people to know I'm praying in public in this place, in the street corner. It's, it's still a problem in circles, some circles of Judaism today. Some people think that their prayers are more valuable if they're praying at the wailing wall where the temple could be. God hears us more when we pray there than when we pray somewhere else. Or for Muslims, if they go to Mecca, that is where you need to pray. That is where you need to address God. Unless we look at that and think, oh, we're so high and mighty that we don't think that way. Sometimes we think something similar. We think, well, if I was praying in church or I was praying somewhere special, then God would hear me better than if I just addressed him at home or somewhere else or in my car. We can have pride in our prayer life. We can have pride in, well, I've been praying this long to God. And and that's much better than this other person I know. We can have pride in spiritual places that we may have been to. Well, I went to Israel. That makes me a better Christian than you are. We can have pride in making known how much time we pray. We're making known that we're praying. Hey, you want to come over? No, I'm sorry. I'm praying right now. I can't do that. If you were more spiritual, you would be praying like I was now too. And that's silly. We don't often say things like that, but sometimes 
we let that attitude out to others. And sometimes, even worse, we keep that attitude in our brain. We think, well, I know I've been praying more than that person who sits next to me in church, so that means I'm better than them. I'll even admit as a a pastor, I I feel some of this kind of pressure. For me, I feel it because every Sunday I I do some type of public prayer. So I think I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be praying in front of people. I have to make sure that my prayer has nice words and that it sounds good and that people like it. But you know, if I'm thinking that way, that's, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about there. I'm thinking about my prayer then as what's being seen by others, not about its communication with God. That's why Jesus says in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So prayer is expected, but it should be secret. It should be secret. Now we may hear that and go, uh, Pastor John, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but just a couple of minutes ago, there was multiple people standing up where you were who were praying. In fact, if I remember correctly, you started this sermon by saying a prayer in public, Pastor John. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, well, Jesus is making a larger point. Jesus himself prayed in public, but he says that our, how we pray exposes our motivation. Here at our church, we have public prayer services. We'll gather together in prayer. We encourage praying with one another. There's many examples of that in Scripture. What Jesus is saying is that the point of prayer is not to draw attention to yourself. The point is to have a conversation with God. If we're drawing attention to ourselves with our prayer, then we're not doing it right. Well, how do we know? How can we, we check ourselves? Well, there's, here's two questions to think about. Do, when you pray, do you pray longer when you're in public than you do in private? Do you pay more at a prayer service or in a science school class than you pray when you're at home? If that's true, then you might not be praying the way that Jesus says. Or how about this? Do you pray differently when you're in public than where you're in private? Do you use different words when others are hearing your prayers than you do when you are talking to God? If we say yes to those, something may be off in our prayer life. So there's nothing wrong with praying in public, but it shouldn't be our main focus of prayer. It shouldn't be the main place that we pray. And it shouldn't be drastically different from how we pray when it's just us and God. Who we are in public and who we are in private should be one and the same. We don't need to put on a show with our prayer life or any way we're growing in faith. We are to pray in secret when we're alone with God because God sees us and he knows everything that we need. And if we're away from others, then we can focus on God. That's what Jesus says that, why he says about going to your room and shutting the door. He's encouraging us to be away, unhindered, so we can focus on God himself, excluding the rest of the world and its distractions so we can see God clearer. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says, as the very soul of prayer lies in communion with God, the point of prayer is that we're communing with God, we're close to him then we shall pray best when all our attention is confined, focused on him. And we shall best reach our end, our goal of being accepted by him when we have no regard to the opinion of anyone else. So he's saying if the goal of prayer is that we're communing with God, we're close to him, we're growing in a relationship with him, then if we're alone, that's the best way for us to experience that and know that because we're just focused on him. And if our goal is to have a deeper relationship with God, to be accepted by him, 
then if we put out of our mind what others are thinking about, that's going to help that purpose. When we pray, we are spending time with our Heavenly Father. He approves, He rewards this kind of prayer. But Jesus has more to say about prayer than that. We looked at verses 7 and 8. In those verses, he talks about that we should not heap up empty phrases or babbling or vain, meaningless repetition, as he says Gentiles or pagans do, because they think they will be heard for their many words. They think they'll get an answer from their gods if they just keep repeating the same prayers over and over. If they repeat the name of their gods over and over, then yes, God will answer me. But Jesus is saying, repeating the same prayer over and over doesn't motivate God to act differently. He's prohibiting mindless repetition. He's not saying that you can't repeat a prayer if it's earnestly coming from your heart. If you are in a a tough, broken situation, you're saying, God, help me with this. God, help me. Help me, help me. If that's coming from your heart, then, then pray that by all means. We can use the same words if it's from our heart. But he's saying, saying the same prayer without it coming from our heart, thinking that that will make God act in a certain way. That is what we should avoid. Uh, a couple of us in this church it experienced something that, that may have been something similar to there. Some of us were praying the other Saturday. Last Saturday, we went to downtown Harrisburg. We were praying uh, near an abortion clinic. We were praying that God would save lives from abortion. And while we were there, there was some uh, people who were there who were from a uh, Catholic church. And on the uh, subject of abortion, the Catholic church and their followers, there are allies in, in, that, in that fight, that strive, that we're trying to save lives and preserve lives. And we work together in that cause. We do understand the Bible very differently. And, and one example of this is in how we pray. So we were there and we had a list put together, some things to pray about. We were praying in silent prayer over our list. Uh, these friends of ours who were there, they were praying through out loud a set series of prayers that they did over and over and over again through the course of the hour. Now, I have to admire their, their passion for it and their commitment. They were there before we got there, and they were there after we left, um, doing the, their, their same prayers that they did, uh, again, the same ones over and over. And so I, I don't know what's going on in their hearts when they're doing that, but it, it troubled me to hear the same thing over and over and over again, because it made me wonder, is, it, is that always coming from the heart? And the prayer wasn't often about the reason while we were there of life preserving. It was a certain set of words that were repeated, a certain set of Hail Mary or the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is in Scripture, but by saying it over and over again, there seemed to be a thought process of if we say this enough, then God will act for what we are doing. Again, I don't know their heart, but Jesus' desire is that our prayer is not mindless repetition, that it's in secret because our prayer should be personal. That's the other blank that you have there. Prayer should be secret, but it should also be personal. What's important to God is not the form of the prayer or how long we're praying. What's important to God is that we're focusing on communicating with him. We can use someone else's prayer to do that if it's expressing what our heart and what we're trying to say to God. There are plenty of prayers in scripture that Perhaps I look at him like, that's what I'm feeling now, God, so I'll pray that prayer. There's books of prayers from church history. We can look at it and go, oh, that, that's a wonderful prayer expressing what I'm feeling now. But if it's not what we're feeling, it's not what we're trying to communicate to God, then we shouldn't pray it. And Jesus says, do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
We don't need to manipulate God with repeated prayers or special words. There's not something we say that then God will go, oh, I wasn't going to give you that, but because you said that five times, now I will. That's not how God works. He knows what we need. He wants to hear from us and hear our heart, not a certain set of words. As God says in Isaiah 65, 24, he says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Our prayer isn't motivating God to act, changing him. Our prayer is us coming to God, expressing our dependence, that we need him. He alone is the one who can work in this situation. Every moment of every day, God sees us. He knows what we're doing and he knows our needs. God knows everything about us, what we're doing and everything we need. On one hand, that's, that's kind of scary because it means that nothing we do is hidden from God. He sees all of it. He, he knows what's going on in our life. He knows what we're thinking. But when it comes to prayer, that's comforting. Because even if we don't have the right words, even if they're not the best words, even if we can't string together words like justification, regeneration, and the hypostatic union of sublapsarianism or, or something like that, we can still communicate our heart to God. We cannot get away from God. We cannot get away from his presence. He is always with us. And so in prayer is a way we seek to know him more. Now, what should we pray? What exactly should we say when we're praying? Well, I'm not going to answer that question today. Instead, in two weeks, uh, Elder Dan Long is going to be speaking. He's going to talk about what Jesus says in verses 9 through 15 about the way we should pray and the way we should address God. So I look forward to hearing that as he'll talk through the Lord's Prayer. Instead, for us, we're going to jump to verse 16 because you'll see it's very similar to the verses we looked at today. And the third example of growing spiritually Jesus talks about is fasting. Fasting. So listen to verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I hope you've been listening enough to tell. You can see why we tied these together. What he says about giving, what he says about prayer, and what he says about fasting are very similar. And since they're very similar, I hope you can tell what the very first blank is going to be under the point of fasting. And that's fasting is expected. Fasting is expected. For the Christian, he expects us to fast. Again, he says in verse 16, when you fast. In verse 17, when you fast. Not if, but when. It should be a normal part of the believer's life. And Jesus gives us reasons why this should be. In Matthew 9, he says this, the disciples of John came to him and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus saying he's, he's here, he's with his disciples. They don't have a reason to fast, to long for his presence because he's right there. They can talk to him. But Jesus is not physically with us now. 
And that means that now, this time of our life, is when we should be fasting, longing to be closer to Him. When we die and go to heaven or when Christ returns, we will not fast anymore. We will be with our Lord. We'll have a feast of celebration, but we're not there yet. And so for now, Jesus expects His people to fast. He expects them to do it until He returns. Now is the time. Okay, so Jesus expects us to fast, but what exactly are we talking about here, Pastor John? This is, of the other ones, we may say, okay, I understand we give to church, I understand we pray, but what's, what's fasting? And you might remember a year ago, I shared some of these things then. And I really like this definition from it from Donald Whitney, who wrote a book on spiritual disciplines. He says, he makes this definition, Christian fasting is a believer, a follower of Christ, their voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So Christian biblical fasting is a believer choosing, volunteering to abstain, to not eat food for a spiritual purpose. There are other types of fasting, and while they may be healthy and helpful for our mind and our body, we we can't call them Christian or biblical fasting. Now, as a believer in Christ, you may say, I'm going to abstain from this activity or another. You may say, I'm going to take a month off of social media. And if you want to call it a fast, you can do that, but that's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about fasting. It is always talking about food and drink. So if you think, I really shouldn't be on social media, I'm going to take a fast from it, great. That's wonderful. Just you're taking kind of a broad definition of what fasting is. In the Bible, they're always talking about food and drink. And yes, I know for medical reasons, there are some people who cannot fast, but we should think carefully because Christ says it's something that we're expected to do. So if we can't do it medically, I'm not telling you to do it, but we just need to think through, is this some way that I can grow and know God? For a believer, it's to have a spiritual purpose. If we're a non-Christian, then fasting, not eating food, it doesn't obtain any eternal value. It has to be rooted in a relationship with Christ. It has to be practiced with a desire to be more like Christ, according to how the Bible says, and a purpose that is God-centered. It's a voluntary thing, not coerced. If you hear me saying up here, you need to go fast this week, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is fasting is a way we can grow to know God. It's not a diet It is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. I'll talk more about that in a second, but that is the most important part. If we don't have a spiritual purpose in mind in our fast, it will just frustrate us. We'll think, why am I doing this? This is pointless. Our passage, Jesus talks about how we should do it. He tells us how we should not, and then he tells us how we should. The bad example was the Pharisees, because when they fasted, He said they disfigured their face. They left their faces unwashed. They would sprinkle ashes on them so everyone could see, oh, they are fasting right now. Everyone would know because their hearts were after the praise of man rather than seeking God. And like all the other ones we read, Jesus has some harsh words for them. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Their actions were intended so others would see them and draw praise And that's all their actions will do is make others see them and draw praise. And Pastor Charles Spurgeon, I thought he put this really powerfully. He said, we cannot expect to get a reward both from the praise of our fellows, from other people, and from the pleasure of God. We have our choice. Do we want others to praise us or do we want God? And if we snatch at the minor reward, we lose the major. May it never be said of us, they have their reward. 
That's a convicting challenge to us. What type of reward are we seeking? The praise of others or the praise of God? God did not respect the fasting of the Pharisees because they did it for themselves. They did it to look good. God honoring fasting should be for the Lord, not for us being praised. Another pastor, David Platt, says our ultimate desire should be for God's recognition regardless of what man says. Who cares if someone sees you or knows how you're choosing to grow more like God? We don't fast to impress others, to highlight our spirituality, or to leave others in awe. Instead, Jesus says believers in him are to fast by acting like they do at any other time. He says in 17, when you pray, when, when you fast, I'm sorry, he says, anoint your head, wash your face, do what you would do on a normal day, that your fasting may not be seen by others, by, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. No one should be able to look at you and know whether you're fasting or not. You want to fill in? If You probably would have guessed already. It's the, the same. The fill-ins have been basically the same throughout each one, but fasting should be secret. Now, someone may find out that you're fasting. They may find out that you're giving. They may find out that you're spending time in prayer. And you know, if you're married or in a family with someone, probably a good idea to let your spouse know if you're doing a particular discipline that affects them, like giving or, or fasting. It may be helpful to communicate that. The goal here is not that we work hard at hiding what we're doing. The goal is that our focus is on God, not that others see us. Jesus is telling us to act normally. Fasting is for seeing God, not being seen by those around us. It's fasting that's for God and not for others that God rewards. When we fast, we should act as we normally do as much as possible. We're doing it for the Lord, not for others. This still is one that, that, again, we don't emphasize very much. We may wonder why. why. Why fasting? What makes this so special? How are we growing here? I get that if we're giving, God's given me something, I'm giving it to someone else. I get that if I'm praying, I'm communicating with God. But what's the benefit of fasting? Well, fasting illustrates that we are dependent on God. And God expects us to depend on Him even more than the food that we eat. Christian fasting is depending on Jesus. And that's why if you're not a believer in Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, there's no benefit you get from fasting. You don't earn anything with God. If you're fasting, you're not a Christian, you just become hungry. That's the only result you're going to see. And if you're not a Christian, then you're separated from God and you're stuck in your sin. You're away from him. Listen to these words from John 6, 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is saying he died on the cross. And when he died, he paid the penalty for our sin. Those things that like worm our way into our prayer, our rebellion against God. He paid for that. He paid for that so we could be restored to God. Fasting is an illustration of I need to depend on him. But if we don't know him, have a relationship with him, we can't depend on him. And I pray that if you don't know God, whether you're here in the sanctuary or you're watching online, that you will seek to know him, that you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. You can talk to me, and I'll talk to you about how you can do that, but you can call out to God as well. You can turn from sin and have a relationship with Jesus. You can have the living bread 
that Jesus gives. You can enjoy eternal life with him. Pray that you will talk to someone today about knowing Jesus Christ. But if we are a follower of God, Jesus says, when you fast. So how do we do that practically? Well, if we remember our definition, we need to remember fasting is for a spiritual purpose. And without a purpose, it's really a miserable experience. It's just about willpower. I need to make it to this time to, to get through. This is the time frame I have set. Uh, I know when we were in youth group here, we did a thing called 30-hour famine, where we wouldn't eat for 30 hours. The purpose was we were supposed to get sponsors and raise money. I think it was for World Vision to help those who were hungry. Well, let me tell you, when it gets to close to the end of those 30 hours, you start counting the hours, and then you start counting the minutes, and then you start counting the seconds till that, that time was up. And I was younger in high school. There was a moment I lost my sense of purpose, and I was focusing on the time, like two more hours, an hour and a half. An hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and five minutes. We can lose the sense of purpose if we're not thinking about what, is, what am I doing? Why am I not eating now? The value of fasting is when we're hungry, our stomach growls. And when our stomach growls, we should ask, why is my stomach growling? Oh, it's because I'm hungry. Why am I hungry? I'm hungry because I'm not eating. Why am I not eating? Because I'm fasting. And I'm fasting for this purpose. This is the reason why I'm not this moment. It's important to feel the hunger. It's to remind us of our spiritual purpose. It's a reminder for us to pray, to say, this is why I'm fasting, God. I'm fasting. Maybe it's, I'm, there's some sin issue in my life, and God, I'm praying for you to work in it. So this is remind me to pray about that. Maybe I'm praying for someone else, a loved one who's sick or someone who doesn't know Jesus. And so that's a reminder to me to pray for that person. So we should make sure our fast is for a biblical reason, that it's leading us to pray for something God desires. If we're also fasting, we should very practically know ourselves. If you're like me, and Christine can tell you, and not eating food turns me into an unpleasant person. So since that's true, if I'm fasting, I should pick a time and a place where I won't be around other people very much so that the hunger can lead me to praise God and not annoy my wife or someone else. Nothing you're not really growing spiritually if someone looks at you and goes, why are you so angry? And you're like, I'm fasting. That, that, that doesn't really help with the, <laughs> with the spiritual growth there. If it's something we want to try, I encourage you to try one meal a week. Just, just, just try one meal. And when you get hungry, to pray for God to work in that and maybe build to something else. Let your hunger drive you to prayer. Again, though, if you have to eat for a medical reason, I am not telling you to not eat. Please hear me saying that. Maybe consider some, maybe a partial fast or something. Maybe for one meal you don't have your favorite food, you have something else, and so that longing perhaps could lead you to pray. When we're fasting, uh, we're hungering for God. Don Whitney again says this. He says, fasting is when we hunger for God more than we hunger for the food God made us to live on. Maybe we're hungering for a fresh encounter with God. Our, our faith's been feeling kind of stagnant. We, we haven't really felt God's presence. Well, maybe fasting will help with that. Maybe we're hungering for an answer to prayer. God, there's this decision I have to make. I need your wisdom. Maybe fasting is, is something we can do. I'm not saying you do it and God will speak from heaven. I'm saying it's a way to speak God and know him more. Maybe it's a way for us to pray for someone that we know and love, that God would save that person, work in their life. Maybe it's something we do as a prayer for God to work powerfully in our church or to guide and protect us. These are all spiritual disciplines we're talking about, ways we grow to know God. 
I'm not saying that you are a bad Christian if you're not giving X amount of dollars. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian if you don't fast this number of meals. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian if you don't prayer this set number of minutes or hours. I'm not trying to tell you to do something that's that's harmful to your health. Uh, If it's a fasting thing, you have unique medical needs. If a doctor is giving you instructions again, please do that. What I am saying is that these things, fasting, giving, praying, these spiritual disciplines are ways that God has given us, that Jesus talks about, that we can know him. And some of them we neglect, and it's worth figuring out how we pursue them. I won't say I'm an expert in all these things. I'm still learning the best way to give with money. I'm still learning the best way prayer life can work. I don't pretend to be an expert at fasting. When I've fasted, it's been more like one meal a week for a particular occasion, something that's really burdening, burdening me, something I'm praying about, a serious issue. So I know this is true every week, but I'm really leaving the application of this message up to you. It's between you and God. It's how you're growing in your relationship with God. Let me just reassure you, I'm not going to go to your home this week and check how much you're giving and how much time you're staying in prayer and how often you fast. I'm not going to check on that. What I'm doing is pointing you to practices Jesus talks about, practices promoted in God's word, that if we pursue them, will help us know God. So it will benefit us. And then by extension, it will benefit our church together as we know God more. Remember, Jesus said, when you give, when you pray, when you you fast. He expects us to do these things. We don't do them for others, but we do it secretly. We do it personally from our hearts. These spiritual disciplines, really any of them, whether it's reading the Bible, giving, praying, fasting, they should have an audience of one. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is for his glory and his praise. He is the one who saved us. He is the one that we live for. So let's commit to honor him with our lives. Let's commit to grow to be like him. In this moment, though, let's praise him in song for what he has done to save us. And then we'll remember his work that he has done to restore us to him through the Lord's Supper.